Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Before going on to tell you about today's guest, I wanted to let you know that this episode is going to be the last before we take a short summer break for the series. I've got some great guests lined up for the rest of the year, and I'm really excited for those interviews. But with lockdown restrictions easing and many people, including myself and the team here at Create Engage, taking a much needed break, we've decided that we'll be doing the same for Climbing Consulting, returning in the autumn when the world has, fingers crossed, got back to normal. So who is today's guest? Who is the last guest before we take our summer break? Well, I wanted to end on a high and bring you a fantastic guest for you to enjoy as you set off on your own holidays. To make sure I got someone at the top of our field, I asked my good friend, fellow podcast host and Create Engage client, James Mitra at JBM, who he'd recommend. James has a fantastic network. So when he recommended today's guest, I knew we were in for a great interview. So who is it? Well, today's guest is Mike Newlove, managing partner and UK practice lead at Wavestone, the leading global consultancy with over three and a half thousand people working across eight countries to help their clients deliver their most critical transformation programs. Mike's story is a hugely interesting one and challenges many of the commonly held assumptions about what it takes to have a successful career in consulting. 
Although a self-proclaimed introvert, Mike actually started his career in sales with BT before being headhunted to join Deloitte. It was while at Deloitte that Mike met Harry, his future business partner, and following a particularly tough negotiation for a US-based client, Mike and Harry decided that the time was right to strike out on their own and launch Hudson & York, a specialist consultancy focused on helping their clients navigate the world of network services. Following a roller coaster journey with Hudson and York, something we discuss at length in today's show, the business was acquired by Solucom, now Wavestone, in 2015. Mike has continued to lead Wavestone in the UK and sits on the Global Executive Committee, helping to shape the business for the future. Mike is as open as he is honest, and in this interview, he gives his candid take on a whole host of topics, including the key differences between working in industry and working in consulting and how he found the transition, how he decided that the time was right to strike out with his business partner and launch Hudson New York, and the key role that his now wife played in supporting him through that time. And becoming part of Wavestone, what led Mike to stay on and lead the UK business, and why he's excited by what the future holds for them. I really enjoyed this interview with Mike, and as his story shows, you don't have to follow the typical consulting career path or have many of the assumed typical personality traits to be successful in consulting. If the current pandemic has led you to think about setting up your own business, or maybe you're considering a career move and trying to decide what type of consultancy to join next, I know that you'll find this interview invaluable. So with the intro done, please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview with Mike Newlove. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. So this is the second one of these I've done in lockdown. And uh, I find I love to do them face to face. But I think I know we've had a chat before. And I'm really excited for what you're going to you know, what we're going to talk about some of the things we're going to share. I think there's some really interesting parts of your journey that I'm keen to pull out and, and get your perspective on for my listeners. And I guess before we dive into all of that, Mike, I'm conscious that not everyone will will know yourself, know Wavestone. So maybe we could start with just a little bit on who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, fine. I mean, I, I guess I'm a partner in Wavestone. I lead the UK team here. My career is, is a potted one. I didn't join consulting directly. I grew up in the southwest of England, went to school in Bristol, then went down to university in Exeter where I studied an electrical engineering degree. And I started my career in BT. So I, I joined the, the UK sales team in BT, which was interesting at the time. I had many, many different ideas, wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. Was it accountancy? Was it, I don't know, electrical engineering? All those types of things. But ended up in, say, in the UK sales team. I was sort of a technical support for the sales guys. I was in BT for nine years on that journey. Ended up being a sort of direct salesperson, moved into account management for the last sort of four or five years of that. And then I was headhunted into Deloitte. A sort of colleague of mine uh, went across first, gave my details to a headhunter as it worked, and and ended up joining Deloitte. Spent six years in Deloitte as part of a, I guess, the sort of technical architecture network services team. And my skills went from sort of selling sort of technology services and telecom services into helping clients buy them. So poacher turned gamekeeper. Spent, yeah, five, six years in Deloitte, then decided to launch my own business with a colleague which was Hudson York, and we set up a sort of niche specialist consultancy, very much focused on helping clients buy network services. That was our our core mantra and our, our, our nicheness. And then after a few years, I think it was about six years, we were um, acquired by a French consultancy, which was called Solucom at the time. 
It's now since been rebranded to Wavestone. Um, and that transaction happened in February 15. So now been part of the group for the last five years. And Wavestone has, in the UK anyway, and in internationally has grown. And I guess I can talk more about that as the as the podcast goes on. Fantastic, Mike. Well, well there is lots to dive in there. I'm going to start probably somewhere I hadn't expected, but I think it's going to be really relevant to our conversation. And I just want to clarify, particularly for others listening who may not not be clear on what it is, you've obviously built a career in, in, like you say, buying, selling network services and sort of that side of things. For the layman, what is a network service? And it may be irrelevant to our longer conversation, but I think just because it's what you do, I know someone will be listening and thinking, I'm not sure what that is. Okay. Yeah, go back to the sort of question you get asked by your mum, isn't it? What do you do and, and all that sort of good <laughs> stuff. But, but no, I mean, the network is what holds everything together. It's where things are connected. Like I always sort of like, and if, you, if, if, if you've got a, an individual and you've got a, a credit card or a, a bank card and you go and stick it in the ATM to get some money out, the bank will have to know how much money you've got in your account. That's all connected together. Right, so that's a, an easy example. We're all sitting here working at home with broadband in our in, in our homes, and you know I'm sitting here talking to you, and we can see each other on on a video call. That's the network element of connecting everything together. There's a lot of technology behind that. Uh, it is one part of the infrastructure, one part of I guess the CIO's domain. But you know, I I used to sell companies services that connected everything together when I was part of BT and I, I worked with um, some food retailers. So for them, it was all about how they connected all their stores back into the, the head office. So every time you, you went in and made some transactions, bought some things, that was the network, right? So so it's all of those sort of technologies. Um, give you an example of something that's happened in my, in my career. If it's interesting, I, I, was, I was playing golf with some friends at a weekend and I looked after, I won't say which one it was, but one of the food retailers, the phone went, uh, very, very angry CIO on the end of it. Um, network had gone down and basically about a hundred of their stores were unable to operate. They had people walking out of this. They had to make the decision that people, they couldn't pay for their services. They had no way of uh, transacting. They had no way of checking all of the sort of the goods and the price of the goods with the bar scanners. So they had people walking out of their stores with full tr shopping trolleys. So I, I left the golf course, got in the car, drove to the client's head office and sat with him while BT tried to fix the issue. So wow, there you go. Yeah. So that that's a really useful overview. And I, I you know, I'll be completely honest, I hadn't quite appreciated the, the breadth and uh, I guess the criticality of those network surfaces. And I think that example really bring, brings it to bear. And, and as I say, we'll give others listening just that context as we go through the conversation. And, and maybe we start there. You know, you mentioned BT, you mentioned the jump to Deloitte. I always think that's quite an interesting transition. You know, I, I did it much earlier in my career, but I went from industry, if you like, to consulting. And you mentioned a headhunter sort of came to find you based off a recommendation. How did you decide you wanted to move? Because I imagine consulting was quite a different career from sales and account management. Very different. Very different. I mean, I've been at BT for nine years, okay? Straight from graduate, it was the only company I'd ever ever worked for. And they were a fantastic company to work for. You know, I, I really, really enjoyed the people around me. But if I'm honest, towards the end, the job wasn't as challenging anymore. Okay, certainly wasn't for me. And it wasn't, I don't want to like, sound big headed or anything, but it wasn't difficult to be seen to be doing a good job in that environment. Okay, there were, you know, there were good people around and, and, and so on. So when the opportunity came along, I didn't really understand what consulting was. But it was it was new. It was different, and and the assessment centres to get into Deloitte it, it was incredibly challenging. 
right? And, you know, I, I went in at uh, sort of manager level. I think I would have been around probably 30 years old, something like that. And that sort of opened your eyes up around what was out there. The I'll be I'd be lying to say that the the remuneration wasn't significantly higher from a basic salary perspective. I was on a, a sales package, so and I say a, a colleague, a friend had just gone over and made made the jump and was telling me you know what he was enjoying by it. So those were the the things that I was presented with. I did take a lot of time to think about it. I was made an offer pre Christmas, and I took the whole of the Christmas period to make my decision. But um, yeah, decided to jump and, and, you know, I guess never look back from that perspective. This may be a question that you just say that was too long ago, but to what you've said there around you took the whole of Christmas, what was it that took the whole of Christmas to think about? Do you remember any of those questions, considerations that you really, you you were really wrestling with over that period to decide whether it was right for you? I, I think, you know, what was, a, what would I be setting myself up for, right? You know, it's the first job change. So, you know, I hadn't done that before. So it was kind of like, you know, and, and because I'd been approached, it wasn't something that I was actively out there looking for at that point in time. But your questioning is, is that what the direction I want my career to go off in? It is very different. As I say, it's a very, very different company. I knew they were one of the big four and I knew they were one of the premium firms in the industry. So that's obviously makes you nervous. That's probably a bit scary. So you had to but then you thought, step back from it. Well, actually, if I'm going to go into the industry, I will learn the most and I will be trained effectively by by one of the big, the, the big brands. And I think having worked at Deloitte, for me, being on your CV when I, you know, we get onto when I launched my own business, I think that was very beneficial and helpful. So I think I thought about all of that stuff and, yeah, just decided to go. And I still remember my first day at Deloitte turning up and sitting there with everybody in a room and you know, getting your, your your laptops, and three days later, you I was out on a client site, and boy, was that a big difference. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's an interesting one as well, in terms of that jump from industry to consulting. And actually, yeah, you you teed me up quite nicely there for sort of that. You know, that was quite a it's quite a shock, quite a learning curve, almost in that that early. You know, take early to mean what you it did for you. You know, be that days, weeks, months, years. What what were, was it that you found yourself really? really having to sort of upskill in quickly what was that huge learning curve that you had to get comfortable with and i guess the skills that maybe you hadn't got sort of having spent the last 10 years or nine years in sales i i think you know and i say it to many people when they come into consulting it's a huge jump right if you come in at the, you know you know having spent those nine years in in, in a working environment it, it completely different and and i i don't think i realized what a big change it would be and the expectations would change. And I think one of the things that hit me right at the beginning was, you know, the, the amount of money. And we, I think we were on, I can't remember if it was a fixed price or a time materials. But when you look at the price breakdown, I was sold into this project as a manager. I was leading the infrastructure team of a, of a CRM rollout. So we had a load of guys doing the development. We had various people interfacing with the business. It was with ABN AMRO Bank. I remember that at the time based in, in London. And leading an infrastructure team, well, while I was a networks guy, I didn't know all the wider stuff of industry. So there I am parachuted into a client, not understanding all of the areas that I was working with and expecting to know that. And then I looked at it and thinking the client was paying, you know, north of, I think, £2,000 a day for my services. And I'm thinking, hang on, they're paying for me. In BT, I would sell a service, right? I was part of the service. Hopefully, I was one of the reasons they bought the service from BT, but I wasn't the service if that makes sense yeah now i was part of the service and i think 
that's something to get your head around, right? You know, and 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 you know that client is paying for you know a, a set of things to happen as a consultant, and you're a key part of that. And and that was incredibly challenging. And and everybody in the project team, I remember looking around, incredibly bright people. The standard of people you're working with is very very high in in, in consulting generally. But in, in, in Deloitte, some very, very bright people. So everybody's good. Everybody's challenging. Everybody's working really, really hard. And I guess the work ethic as well, it was a big change. I mean, I, you know, I, I never said I didn't, didn't work hard. I thought I worked hard. But the expectations of working hard, you had to work hard to deliver what the client was expecting. That takes a number of, of, of hours as well. So there was a lot of change. And, and yeah, you've got to get used to it, I guess. Yeah, it's it's jumping a little, and we'll we'll come further on to the Wavestone journey. But I'm intrigued, having sort of seen that yourself and had that feeling of pressure based on the expectations that are based on that you know that price point of now with your your Wavestone hat on, you know you're growing the team very quickly. You've taken on a number of people sort of over the last couple of years that we'll, we'll again talk about sort of shortly. But what advice do you give to those people joining the team from industry, assuming there are some who are joining from industry, you know, what is that advice that you give? Is it the warning based on what you've just said, or are there other things that you sort of try and get people comfortable with before they make the leap? I absolutely now in in, in any interview process make it quite clear to people the expectations of consultants and management consultants and what the clients think, because you know it is a different career, right? And and th- th- those expectations I found very very different. So if you're if you're industry and, and you've got a job to do and you, yeah people work incredibly hard in industry and incredibly good at what they do I'm not saying they're not but when you're somebody is paying directly for your service at a premium rate because in consulting we like to you know it is a premium rate that's an expectation that happens and then that ethos flows through everything you do so you're expected to do that and if you're an experienced person coming in, you probably got other expectations as well around whether it's building capability internally, whether it's representing your your skill set to a wider audience, whether it's internally or externally within the consulting company. You're then expected to sell and develop relationships with clients. So there's all those multifaceted areas to your role. And I do try and make sure people are aware of that and not to take it lightly. I think some people take it lightly and then, and then without realizing all of those expectations, because, you know, for me, when, you know, I don't care with diverging, but if, if I'm recruiting anybody into, into Wavestone, whilst we're making a decision on the individual coming in and whether we think they're right for Wavestone, they should be making their decision on whether they think Wavestone is the right company for them. And if you're coming into consulting, it's not just the company you're entering. It's also the career. Is this the right career move for me? And I'll be honest, I'd be lying if I hadn't advised people through that process. I don't think consulting is right for you because of these reasons, right? Because you don't fully understand that or or, or whatever. So we do hope that people can articulate that and have that conversation through that process. Those reasons, are there any that you, I appreciate every person's situation is highly, highly unique, but this might be asking you to make too big a leap in terms of a generalization. But do you see... From all of the you know recruitment you've done and and your time in the industry, are there certain types of people or certain industry backgrounds that translate better or worse? And maybe a, a second or an alternative question is your background from sales. I would say is rather unusual to you know, to jump into consulting, albeit you had a highly analytical education background. How? So the first question would be for anyone, what are those generalities? And then maybe specifically for people like yourself coming out as a sales background. 
is consulting usually a, a path that works out for people from that background? And if not, what do they need to think about before making that leap? Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. I guess from a sales perspective, you know, I, I guess I'm a more generic businessman, but my one of my key skill sets and one of the things I translated through my consulting career is, is very much been the ability to negotiate contracts and deals with people. And, and that's what's part of the, the sourcing element. And I, I learned that in my sales. One of the things that I hadn't learned and I hadn't appreciated was some basic project management skills, right? I hadn't had to do any of that in my BT days. And, and as a consultant, that's just a basic core element of what you do. So the ability to organize, project manage, and do things overlaid with the analytical skills, right? Of being, you know, you know, the, the some of the best consultants out there have those real strategic analytical brains, right? So that doesn't necessarily translate from the background that I had. It's difficult to to make a, you know, a generalization but those are a couple of the key skills that i would i would suggest and i guess it's probably the same in many many industries though you've got to be able to develop relationships and talk to people and and communicate clearly and effectively if you're analyzing a, a client's areas and you have to be able to communicate the issues back to the client in a in a in a positive and a real way you have to be realistic and and that can be good and bad messages so so all consultants need to do that Maybe in some industries, you only have to do that at that level if you get more and more senior. But in consulting, you have to be able to do that at, at, at all levels, I would suggest. So. so I want to turn to, I guess, the the end of the Deloitte story and the, the start of the Hudson York story. And maybe I'll, I'll keep the question very brief, which is, it'd be great to get sort of that ex sort of outline of actually how Hudson York came about. Could you, you know, I know we talked a bit about this on our last call, but for, for my listeners, could you sort of give them the the origin story of of where you were and and actually how the idea and ultimately how the you know how you decided to take the leap? Yeah, uh, if, if I'm allowed, I may I may sort of divert quickly because I think oh, a little bit a little bit of um, background here because I was reflecting on this be, before we started the session today, and I guess one of the key reasons you know I did it is is because I was supported from a you know my wife supported me and and and, and through that process. And when I was at Deloitte, you know, I think one of the things about consulting, one of the, the challenges that I get from a lot of the, the junior members of the team, and I think it's one of the reasons that I left Deloitte to start Hudson York, is people like to be involved in projects that they like and they want to do. Okay. The reality in consulting and whatever consulting company is there are projects you just have to do sometimes. And I would give people the advice is to embrace those projects, right? And what can you learn out of them? Right. Obviously, if you never get to do what you like, then that's a separate issue. OK, but embrace them. And, and the reason I say that is because when I was in Deloitte, I was available and Deloitte were opening a brand new building. And when they were moving the consulting team from one building to a brand new building and I was asked and come back to, you know, core project management wasn't one of my core skills. I was asked to project manage the move of the whole consulting company into this new building. So I did it right. Internal project, not always I guess looked at on that highly or favorably by your practice leaders because you know it's it's not out there chargeable or whatever, but it needed to be done and it, and it was so 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 I did that project. But the the reason I I say this is because doing that project enabled me or forced me to meet all of the you know executive assistants, the personal assistants of all the partners because we had to work out where they were all going to sit, who's going to sit with who, and whatever. And my wife was one of those assistants, right? So so I met my wife through that process in, in Deloitte. 
so for me, you know, I, I always you know, joke and, and say to people, you know, you, you never know what's around the corner, right, from the decisions you make. So embracing that project and doing it, you know, I, I met my wife for that period of time. So, and she was a key part of, of, of the support for me um, in launching my own business. So then if I go back to the, the question you, you, you said, so I was... I'm only going to, and maybe cover this in it, but I'm, it's a topic that, I'll be honest, I've been talking with my, my wife about. And if you're not comfortable talking about it on the show, that's fine. But actually, at some point in this story, I'd love if you could share some of that support. And the only reason I ask that is, in, our, you know, in the world we're in now, everyone looks at the leader. And so it's obvious, you know, I'm talking to you, you've done this. But like you say, you don't do it without support at home and, and other areas. It might be a topic you're comfortable, not comfortable. So let me know either way, Mike. But I'd love to hear... Just how, you know, a bit on that support to help others thinking about doing the same journey, because it's not, you know, entrepreneurship is not a one man sport. Absolutely not. I mean, I, you know, I, I will talk about my business partner and I, we had very different, I guess, personal backgrounds and, and, and so on and so forth. But no, absolutely. The, the support is, is, is fantastic. You know, we've got three children now. It's a huge part of my life, spending time with the kids. But my wife doesn't work, so I'm lucky from that perspective that she she's been able to, to to give up work. She wasn't as I guess as career orientated as I was, so she was happy to give up work to to look after the children. But I wouldn't be able to do what I do if she wasn't there doing that. But you know, when we were having the debate, and we'll get on to why. But when we were having the debate of launching the, the company, you know, we didn't have children at the time. We hadn't been together that long. Um, so we, we got together in Deloitte around, I think we moved in together around January 2005. We were married in 2006. We launched the business in September, October of 2006. So there's wow. the time frame. That's a busy year. And then we had our first child in 2007. So, you know, it, we had to, to, to launch the business. I had to, you know, sell the property we were living in. That was the money which we invested into the business. We then had to move and, and rent a house. So it had a huge impact on us personally. Right. And and the risks clearly of anybody launching their own business is is high. And she was like, no, let's go for it. Let's go for it. We're not going to get anywhere if you don't try. Right. So she was Amazing. very, very supportive and accepted all of the personal circumstances that came with doing it. You know, I say it's very different to my business partner, whose wife was a very senior professional person. So he wouldn't have had probably the same. Well, it was a personal risk for him. It probably wasn't the same, maybe the family risk. I don't know. I mean, everybody's different. So, so yeah, so from that perspective, hugely, hugely supportive. But, I, you know, I, I, if, if we talk about the, the, the reasons, I mean, at, at the time the idea came up, I was working on a, I guess, on a project with AB and AMRO again. So it was the second project so a few years later, helping them buy or, or, or source very, very large global network contracts. And these, these contracts were worth, I think, over 500 million euros. There was three contracts that we did for them, a mobile network contract, which is all the mobile devices globally, a data contract, which was, you know, tying up all the data centers and, and, and communicating between all of the sort of the locations that they had. And then a voice contract, which is very much all around, you know, the, the telephony and, and, and all of those services. And, and they included things like trade of voice because it was a bank. So they were very, very significant. And this was, sorry, buying, they needed these services. Correct. And you were negotiating from suppliers. You were, you were on the ABM Emro buy side to Correct. get the suppliers. Okay. And, you know, the, the, the whole service we provided for them was, you know, we, we started by helping them define the strategy of what they should be buying. And then we, we wrote the uh, RFP documents, which we sent out to the marketplace, inviting suppliers to respond to. We then evaluated those documents. 
We then down selected after evaluating to a shortlist of suppliers. And then we had face to face negotiations with two suppliers for each of those contracts. And because ABN wanted the contracts to be based out of the States, and that's where they we, we ended up negotiating them in New York. So, so a lot of the work was done over in New York, and I think that that helped the, the discussions going forward. So, so that we were doing all of that, and that's when you know, uh, so my business partner Harry and I, we were working together on the same projects. You know, he had a slightly different sort of route into Deloitte. He joined Deloitte. He joined joined after I did. He probably hadn't been there for that long. He came in to lead the as a director to lead the network team. So I didn't know him for that long but then we did a couple of projects before this one together loosely nothing that big but we did a couple of projects and then then we were in new york i guess we were away from the base negotiating these deals um we had a, a small team with us from deloitte plus a big team from the client probably about five or six deloitte people and i don't know maybe up to 25 people from the client organization all the sort of the technical guys we had lawyers we had you know procurement people supporting it and and the head of networks and even the global cio came over because they were so 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 large they allowed us to i guess drive drive the negotiations for them and during that time harry and i were talking and we and we 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 both had frustrations with where we were and we both had and I'd, I'd always I probably hadn't realized it but I'd always had a desire to launch my own business and probably like many many people you, you think what am I going to do if I do a business what could I do it on I mean you, you've got your own business Nick now and what could I do it on you know who would want to do anything that I could do what what skills have I got all those questions go through your minds on and off through your life right yeah and and just to sorry sorry Mike just a real tension on that but it were you as a kid, were you the one selling, you know, sweets they bought at the shop on the playground or, and I only asked because I wasn't, but I just, I'm intrigued. No, I don't think I was. No, I, yeah. I don't think I was. I mean, you know, come back onto me, you know, I'm more of a, a naturally introverted person. I, I think, you know, that's something else. We, another topic we can, we can discuss and, and, and whatever. It's very unusual for me to go into sales. A lot of my friends said to me, why are you going into sales? And that's, that, I guess that's another story, but, but through my days in bt i remember walking from you know um I, I was working up by liverpool street and I, I used to get off the tube at bank and walking along towards moorgate and up 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 i remember walking down that road on many many days thinking dreaming about if i had my own business i could do this i could do that what would it mean and i st i can remember those dreams right um and those ideas those thoughts but they probably didn't translate much past that in in, in those days so, you know, Harry and I were talking and, and he, he, he came to me and he was, he, he was my boss in effect, if you like. And have you ever thought of it? And he, he was thinking of setting up his own business. He was, and you know, what did I think? And I was like, yeah, that was a good idea. And then the discussions went from there. And then we were like, well, what? we realized that we were a very, and, and I think, you know, we were given this um, feedback from one of the suppliers that we were a formidable negotiating team together, the two of us. And you know that 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 was given to us later and i think we kind of realized that i mean we were obviously working together and yeah you share share your views and your ideas what's frustrating you and and then the desire to do something on your own and that's where the idea was was kind of born and and we realized that our skill set of what we actually did was relatively unique now obviously many consulting companies would have done similar things for different clients there was a consultancy out there um at the time that was very much a sourcing company. I think it was uh, TPI became ISG. And we thought, well, we could become the equivalent of them, but focused on network services because the, you know, big clients needed 
big deals and, and, and whatever. So we could bring both skill sets to bear, the, the sourcing capability and the network background into one, and that would be our niche. And that was our idea. So yeah, that was where, it was, that was where the idea was formed. And, you know, we were doing that stuff with ABN and, and, and we finished that off, I guess, sort of late 2005, early 2006 and launched the business at the back end of that. I know I got married around then because I was liaising with my, my wife, arranging the wedding. We got married in January while I was in New York. So I remember I must have been in New York in the back end of 2005. So, yes. Gosh, there's a lot in there, actually. Right, I'd be interested, if, if you don't mind, spending some time on really around that. You know, you mentioned a couple of key things in there and I... I think this more for listeners, and I always try and channel questions I've been asked by people who listen to the show, others I know in the industry. And I guess there's there's two big things to come out of what you've just described. And I'll ask them as separate questions because they weren't separate answers, which I guess that first one, you know, you mentioned the point around your your wife was hugely supportive and without her, you you wouldn't have been able to do this. And you know, she was happy for you to sell your house so that you could raise the capital for this. You know, that's a huge commitment for both of you. And almost maybe I will ask it as a two-parter, is how did you get yourself comfortable with doing that? You know, And the reason I ask is I know a lot of people at that manager grade or senior manager or director grade where you're on good money, you now have, like you said, you know, a significant other, you have potentially children. There's a lot of commitments and the sort of, the, the sort of common life plan says that you should really be settling down, buying a, a sort of semi-detached or detached house and, and sort of you know, starting your adult life. It's quite a big jump to say, no, I'm going to go for what is complete insecurity, sell all my assets and and jump out. I mean, how did you get yourself comfortable with that? And then I'll come on to the second one, which is more around how did you get yourself comfortable doing that with someone else? But let's maybe start with you and then come on to the someone else. Well, I'm a very competitive person, always have been. I've loved sports as a kid. One of these people that I perform better playing the sport than I do in training. Right. So, you know, I used to hate training, but I'd love the actual sport itself. You know, like if somebody asked me to run around the block to train as a kid, I would like to be at the back going, I can't, I don't, I'm not enjoying this, which completely defeats the objective trainers you, you know, if you want to play. But then when I played this, you'd have to drag me off the pitch. I'd be collapsed and I would be in a heap. I would be so tired. I would keep going into whatever. And I think there's an element of that which drives me as an individual. So it was that challenge. It was like, well, I know that will be a challenge. And I know that will really, really drive me and that will actually get the best out of me. I clearly trusted my business partner. That's going to be the second part of your question. But, and it was, why not, right? I'd always wanted to do something. My life was changing, if you like. I was, you know, just recently got married. We wanted to have a family. We wanted to do all of those things. It was like, well, this could be the best thing ever. If I don't try it now, when am I going to try it? Right. So there was an element of all of that. And then my wife was very much like, yeah, go for it. I think I was lucky her father had had his own business. So I think it was a family business. So it, it inherited from his parents. So she'd grown up seeing that. So that was that was positive. But I, I honestly don't know whether I would have done it if if it wasn't for her saying that I, I can't. We felt it was a good idea. I believed in the, in the skills that we were going to do. So I believed in that. I believed that there was a, a market opportunity. So I think from that perspective, there was there was positives there. It wasn't like we were I was going into, you know, buying a restaurant, doing something I'd never done before. Um, so it kind of like all of that stuff was there. Yeah, I think that's that's probably, you know, what drove it. Yeah. No, and I, I completely appreciate and I mean being on that journey myself, I empathize and understand and you know, just just to echo again, 
the the sort of support network you know I, I couldn't do what i do without without my wife and i think you know i <laughs> i don't know if this will appear on the show but my wife you can probably see my wife behind me and she's just she just um mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm very grateful for all of her support but it, you know it's interesting you're you're not the first guest to highlight it so don morehouse who you know, was actually number two on this guest number two on the show he runs a course for people doing what you know what you did and what i'm hopefully doing and and actually his wife has a whole section of that about what you know what you need in that support network because i think it's key as you say the second part then is i kind of get all of that and i just how did you then get comfortable you know you made the point obviously you and harry had, had got to know each other but it was very much colleagues on a project you know and and for anyone listening they know what that's like you know it's intense you sort of it's like you spent a year with each other in a month but you still had only known each other for a few months and actually how did you get comfortable that you were happy making all the commitments you've just said, you know, taking all the risks you've just said with someone else and particularly someone else who you hadn't known each other from school. You hadn't, you know, it, it wasn't a lifelong friend. It was quite an unknown entity. How did you get comfortable with that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good question. And, you know, if Harry's listening to this, he'll, he'll probably have his own view, but you know, he, he was one of the most intelligent, if not the most intelligent person I'd ever met in my life. Right. So there's a huge amount of respect for me, for him. And the fact that he, he'd been successful in many things he'd tried before. He'd, he'd been part of Analysis Mason and he'd been a, he'd set up the Irish office and done so. So I think I believe that he'd done a few things that were similar before, okay? So it wasn't his own business. He was doing something on behalf of somebody else. So I believe there was, you know, I guess a capability in, in, in him. We had, I think we had the same values. One of the things that um, we, we look back on, we trusted each other implicitly. And I think we trust each other implicitly from day one, you know, and we had, you know, some interesting discussions. We would have disagreed on different things. You, you know, we may have fallen out over different things, but neither of us, we never lost that trust from, you know, and, and when you're in business, you, you absolutely have to trust the partner you're with. So I think that was probably always there. And I felt like it was a good idea. I, you know, there was the idea in front of me, right. And yeah. there was somebody who was prepared to do it. I was prepared to do it with, you know, so all of that stuff was, 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 I think, part of it. So, yeah, gave it a go. And we did ask one of the lawyers on the client team if he was interested as well. So initially the concept was three of us um, that, that w- went through that, I guess, storming, forming phase of, 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 of coming up with the idea and, and, and launched the business with, with the three of us. Um, the, the lawyer, he left the business after, I think, three or four months because he realized consulting wasn't for him, right? So which was, I guess, one of those, those parts of the journey you go on. But yeah, so it was that, that yeah, that was the process. And, you know, it, it, you look back on it and it's one of the best decisions you've, I've ever made, I guess. You mentioned there around the values fit. And obviously that, you know, that, that's a really key part of this. How did you confirm that? Was it, were there some times where you, you, know, you sat down and had some meaty conversations around you know, what's important to you, what's important to me? Or was it much more sort of osmosis having got close and worked through this project? You just, you knew what was important to him. He knew what was important to you and sort of, you could see that fit. How, how did you approach that? Yeah, I'm not sure if I can remember the, 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 the details, probably a bit of both actually, because you, you, when you, I guess when you're negotiating contracts with suppliers and we were trusted to do that on behalf of our client, right? So, so you see the values between the two of you. Because, you know, you know, I say this is part of, one of, I think one of the reasons clients used my services and our services when we launched our business was because 
it's not just about screwing a supplier into the ground and getting the lowest price. Deep. It's, a, you, it's a contract here that, that both parties have got to be happy with over a period of time. And, and that was one of the values we took into it. Yeah, you've got to get as good a price as you can because that's important as, as from the client's perspective. But we would also have to say to a client, no, stop. You've got a good deal. Don't keep pushing. Otherwise, you'll regret it in three years' time. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that was a value. You, you see those sort of values between you when you're working together in doing what we did. We pulled some incredibly long hours doing some of that stuff when we were away over there. And, you know, because you're confined in a hotel with a small team, you probably talk an awful lot, don't you? So through that, you, you learn what the, you know, each other's frustrations were with where we worked, with life, where we were, whatever. We were both also big sports fans. And I think, you know, that made a difference, some of the analogies and some of that sort of stuff. So there were, you know, there were there was, you know, common things there that we, we enjoyed together. So we went through all of that. Yeah. And you've teased me with it. I didn't ask last time. I've got to ask, Mike, what's your sport? Well, you mentioned you, you know, you were you wouldn't be torn off the pitch as a kid. What what was it that you uh what were you passionate about then and if you are still now? Well, I well the sports I played as a kid, I I big into my rugby, played a lot of rugby and I played a lot of cricket. So I guess they were the two key ones. Then I got into, hugely got into the NFL, American football, um, as a teenager. My best friend at the time also got into it, which helped. It, it sort of hit our TV screens on Channel 4 in those days. So I hugely got into that. So, yeah, I love sports. I play golf now. But though, if I'm passionate, if things are on the TV, I won't miss I won't miss nfl games and the sort of i guess the team i follow who is your team nfl's not i don't know masses about well, it but um, I... i've I'm, unfortunately they're terrible these days so i'm a big washington <laughs> redskins fan so um you know being in the states i did manage to pick up a, a redskins game when they played the giants in new york so so that was that was great i did i did get to see that yeah i i, I love watching rugby england rugby I'm, I'm you know from the southwest so i'm a bath rugby fan but i don't get to see them live you know a lot of the stuff you can see on the tv these days but i spend my days coaching my my two boys at well and my daughter at, at rugby and Amazing. watching them play cricket so you, you kind of live your life again through them playing sport <laughs> <laughs> oh and hopefully we'll be back to it soon because i uh, we're slowly returning to sport both on telly and sort of at the grassroots level as well. So finger, fingers crossed. Um, and yeah, I, I know I said we'd go off on a few tangents. So I was just, I was curious on that. So thank you. Uh, well, I was, I was at cricket the last two nights I've been at the cricket nets and the cricket training that has restarted. So that's, that's great. So some, hopefully they can start playing some matches in the next few weeks. I don't know. Yeah. Again, a complete tangent. Are they doing that with Mark, like with the, the face masks or is that? No, 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 yeah. no. Um, socially so, distant. I, so, socially distant. Social distancing goes out, out the window with children. Right, um, <laughs> my, my, my kids are nine, ten, and twelve. Yeah, that, that, that's just a reality. You sort of have to accept that they don't hug each other, they don't touch. They know that bit, but they get close to their friends. Yeah. So, but there are rules, right? That they have to take their own ball when they're in the you know the nets playing cricket. They keep apart. You can only have a certain number in the net. So we try. They try their best, but. Yeah, that is the way it is, right? Well, and I, I was actually, funnily enough, about to say, sort of cricket strikes me as probably one of the only sports that is actually made for social distancing. You know, you've got other than the wicketkeeper, everyone else should be a uh, socially distant distance apart if you're playing, you know, if you're fielding well, I expect. But cricket's not my game, so you can tell me different. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's, uh, there's the, the test match is going to start next week, so people will probably guess when we've recorded this pod podcast. Um <laughs> But they haven't allowed cricket yet. They've started football, and that's an interesting question. But I think the issue is the ball, because you 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 you're going to hold it in your hands and you're going to throw it around the field to everybody in the. So I guess that's that's the issue. 
yeah, one of the um, the groundsmen came charging out, telling one of the coaches off for uh, doing a catching practice with the same ball the other night. But uh, yeah, all the parents <laughs> are just standing there going, "Well, say what? How can you how can you socially distance children?" Right? But anyway. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, we'll we'll come off that because I always <laughs> I like current affairs, but I always yeah, there's certain things I can and have can't have an opinion on. And I, as as you know, an armchair epidemiologist, I don't really want to give my view on on how we fix COVID. So. Um, I guess coming back to the Hudson York story, and yeah, it'd be good actually then just to, I'll let you sort of stop off if there's any salient points in between. But I think, you know, when we spoke last time, one of the interesting things you explained was that you had a storming sort of first three years. You know, the business just just sort of skyrocketed, couldn't have been a better story. But then, like many businesses, you know, you were hit by the sort of the financial crisis, that sort of 2007, 8, 9 recession. I'd be fascinated to hear about how you survived that period. I'm also obviously if there's anything in the growth journey that you you know is really key to pull out please do but I'd I think particularly given where we are right now you know to what we were just joking about with the cricket uh, sadly that this ha- this current pandemic has caused you know a global recession and could cause a worse one almost looking back to the last one you know how did you navigate through that period to I guess keep the business going at all, and you know, come out the other side. And obviously, we'll come on to Solucom, Wavestone, and the, the acquisition. But how did you survive that period? And and what are those lessons that you're taking from that period into this one? Well, lots of questions again there, Nick. So, look, the first three years were fantastic. So we started the business in it's probably a bit of history here. It's around September 2006. Um, I started, I, Harry left Deloitte before I did. We'd planned, that was quite a little funny story. We'd planned to sort of do it all in October. And he rang me one day, said, I've just been in. I spoke to the partner and I've resigned. And I'm thinking, but we, we'd agreed not to resign for a few more weeks. And I think he got so frustrated with the conversation that, that he'd left. So I left it a few more weeks uh, and then I resigned to, to follow him. I can't, I think that, I can't remember the exact reason why, but, but, but whatever. So we started in, in around the October time frame properly, although we'd set that incorporated the business in, in September. We did offer an opportunity for a couple of people that we, we worked with in Deloitte. Um, one of them came across and joined us. Uh, that didn't go down brilliantly, unfortunately, in, in, in the Deloitte team. And we also offered an opportunity to one of the, quite funny, one of the, the, the BT guys who had been on the other side of the table who was leading one of the big bids into ABN. Unfortunately, BT didn't win any of those bids, but we were so impressed with with Chris that we, we offered him opportunity. And he, he, he decided to accept. He was living in Amsterdam at the time. So you, you probably worth a podcast with him about why he decided to go from, you know, even even later than me to join these strange guys who sat opposite him <laughs> for several weeks, didn't give him the deal after all the effort he'd put in and then offered him a job to join their fledgling brand new consultancy. But he said yes, right? So so there was the three of us, if you think, the three founders. And then we had two other people who joined. I think Chris might have joined in the November timeframe. He joined shortly afterwards. So there was a, there was a core team of five at that point in time and we had no clients no business we didn't set it up with a client in mind we obviously did what everybody does and you, you reach out to everybody you know in the industry and within the first I can't, a couple of months we won three projects with with three clients um, Vodafone gave us a piece of work SAB Miller and Royal Bank of Scotland, so three big names, um, say, different, brilliant different, names, different size pieces of work, and, and we and, and, and we started off, and I guess we then managed the 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 issue with the 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 third uh, I guess founder. He left probably in the February March time of the following year, so we had to manage that. But because we had clients, because we had you know work, 
we started trying to recruit um, we started recruiting people and you know through those first three years so we decided our financial year would be april through to march so so for those first few months i think we did about 130 grand then we we did the next year and then the following year i think we did you know our, our growth went to 1.3 million revenue three and a half million to over five million over those next three years wow and we, we ended up with a team of about 35 um, dedicated people in at the end of sort of three and a bit years and it gone fantastically well you know we had we were doing some things for some very very large clients people like bp and axa and national grid were all key clients of ours doing big global deals exactly what we wanted to do and we were winning the work because we were specialists in what we did so it's fantastic and then you're right the the bottom fell out a little bit there you know the the the, the financial crisis the recession you know, were clients buying consulting services? They certainly weren't paying people to buy things for them because they'd stopped spending money on projects. So all that 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 stopped, and and then the the following year was a hugely challenging year for us, hugely challenging. And you know, it made us question what we did, were we doing it right, what we should do going forward. All of those emotions go through, and we had to reduce the team, the size of the team. It's something that I absolutely hated doing probably made some mistakes in the way we did that at that point in time if you look back on your career but it was about survival of, of, of the business survival for the wider team and i think when you run your own business and you do feel responsible for your employees okay there's nowhere else to go once if you know when the things are going well you can you know you take the plaudits i guess when things aren't going bad you can't look around and blame anybody else or or, or whatever it, you know so you, ha you have all those emotions so we, we navigated that and then and yeah, the, the business trajectory changed, unfortunately, at that period of time. Uh, and we had to stabilize it for, for a couple of years. And I think through that period, Harry and I would have had differences of opinion on different things. We were different personalities. I had, you know, through the first, those three years of growth, my life changed dramatically. As I think I, I said to you before, I, you know, I had three children during that period. I, you know, I decided to move house buy a house have a house extended all of those sort of good things that people do and you know don't buy and move out of a house don't have kids don't get married all those things are the most stressful things you do in your life right and you know we all do them and we get i did a lot in a very very short period of time managed my way through all of that and then the crisis seemed to happen so it was a hugely challenging period period and i guess you you reflect and you look you learn a lot about yourself of how you react to things like that and how did you react? Because that must have been, you, know, you paint a picture of a business that went phenomenally well and presumably like you, you, know, you alluded to, obviously you had a lot of lifestyle changes, kids, et cetera. But I also imagine, and this may be you know, just an incorrect inference, is if you're making that, you know, the money you were as a business, presumably your personal income had gone sort of, had improved quite significantly over those three years as well. And you'd hit that period almost. What were those things that got you through because all of this comes together, the business performance, your personal life, you know, how did you drive through that challenge to come out the other side? I think that, that there's a lot of emotions there because you, you, you're right. You, you go from a process when you start your own business of you, as I said to you, I, 
you know, we, we, we did a deal, right? And, and I think I would advise people to do this. You, you do a d- deal that's equivalent for all of the founding partners. We, we put money into the business. We didn't take any money out of the business for, I think, a six-month period until the business could repay the loans that we put in. So you have a huge investment. And if you employ people, you have to pay them. You have to buy computers. You have to buy off, whether you rent office space, whatever you, whatever you have to do to run a business, right? You have to set up a payroll. You have to get an accountant. You have to, you have to do stuff which costs you money. So you go from that and then obviously the success of the business grew and developed. So so we were then, you know, earning money from the business and, and that final year that I've just described was very, very lucrative. It was the most lucrative year of my personal life up to that point in time. So that was great. But then the, the downside came and that was very unlucrative. And actually, I probably that following year, I earned less money than I would have done as a graduate in BT. Right, I took out the the absolute minimum you can from a tax perspective. That's what it is about being a business owner. I was lucky, so so you have to look at your earnings over a period of time rather than in a bucket in buckets of, of years. But I think that was probably the hardest thing. You, you, it's embarrassing as an individual. So you turn up in front of your team and you've gone from wow, how great we're doing to look, we're not doing very well now, guys. And you can't. It's not about blaming the team. It's not their fault. You know, it, it's my business. It's our business. We've got to take responsibility for this. And how do we lead our way through it? So we we did our best, right? And whether we, whether we did it well or not, you know, you sort of try and try and reflect on it. And I think, again, my personal life was very different to to Harry. So we probably had very different views on at that time on what to do. And 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 that was there, there were some challenging times which we had to navigate our way through. But we, we stabilized it. We had some good clients. We, we, we focused on what we did. We had a plan, which we tried to execute as best we could. We were still surrounded by some very good people who'd been with us in the good times. And they stayed with, a large number of them stayed with us. You know, I, I use the example of Chris. He's still working with me now. He's a partner in Wavestone now. So, you know, his, his journey in consulting has been with me ever since. So you, you form bonds with people so that when you're going through the tough time, you know who you can trust. You you kind of work through it together, and yeah. So we went. I guess we went through that that period. I don't think there's a there's there's no magic answer here. If we did this and it transformed it, you know, you have to just work incredibly hard. You have to go back to basics. You have to realize what you're what you're good at, and you you know you have to continue to do a great job and take the opportunities when they come up. Yeah, we had to do many things like you know not be so ambitious with your price point through those type of things. You know, we had to look at things like that. You know, when things are going well, clients, you, you, you can charge more for your services. When things aren't going so well and there's, you know, more people out there, the, your differentiator is probably not as obvious as it perhaps was before and things like that. So we had to, we, we focused on all of that sort of stuff and yeah, managed the business through that until, until the, the, the opportunity to sell came along. I think that's a nice a nice segue to to exactly that opportunity. And how did that come about? For those who don't know, what what was that journey that that led to you being acquired by Solucom, as it was was called then? Yeah. So I mean, Harry and I were we were talking, and I think we'd realised that our our paths at that point would probably be different. You know, I think he was reflecting on whether consulting was the right career for him. And he had some personal things that he wanted to, to go off and, and achieve. Right. And he, he, I mean, he actually ended up going off and doing a, did, did another degree and did a master's and, and had many things that he was interested in from a, a, a personal perspective. And for me, you know, I, I was 
still very comfortable with consulting and I had a family to sort of uh, support and, 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 and manage and, and so on and so forth. So we had a different view. So we, we'd started to discuss what the future may hold for, for us individually and what that would mean for the business. So we, I'd be lying if I said we hadn't discussed whether we should sell, whether you know I should buy him out, whether we should let the team buy the company. There were various different options around what you could do. So we'd over the probably the twelve months preceding, maybe maybe a bit, we'd started to have those sort of conversations privately. It wasn't widely with the team, but privately have those conversations about what we could do. We'd had a you know a couple of conversations with some companies out there that sold businesses just to understand what it was, but we hadn't really done anything more than that. And then, and literally, a letter came through the door one day from a, an agency in London saying, you know, we know somebody, and, and I still get those sort of letters today, which go straight in the bin because companies clearly haven't done their research and realized that we're part of a large group. I, for whatever reason, I, I remember saying to Harry, what do you think? And he was like, well, yeah, phone him if you want. So, you know, so I, so I did, I came, I, I phoned him up and spoke to, it, it was a, a, a French guy who was representing French companies uh, trying to buy into the UK. So we, we arranged to meet the, the strategic development director and he came over, talked us through what Solucom were. I mean, at the time they were, you know, French-based consulting company, had been in operation for about 20 years. The founding partner was still running the business and he'd started his career in the equivalent of France Telecom. So there was a networks background, which was interesting. So they'd started from that perspective. And they were, I, I try to remember at the time, probably one and a half thousand and they were looking a thousand, one and a half thousand, something like that. And they were looking at, they'd grown through organically and acquisitions and they'd diversified into a much wider consulting team at that point. And they were looking to make their first foray internationally. And they wanted a UK company. They wanted a, you know, somebody had the right cultural fit and, you know, the, to help them transform the business into an international business rather than the French business. So that was what they were looking for. And yeah, we started having discussions with those guys through that. And so I, so I guess the learning point is if you ever making a phone call, inquiring about something, if you're interested is, is a good thing to do, right? Always follow up on that. Yeah. So, so we went through that process with them and, and we, it, it gave us the opportunity. It gave me the career opportunity to continue consulting. It gave Harry the opportunity to exit consulting at a period in time. And we, we agreed to sell the business and, and the transaction was done in, in February, 2015. There's an interesting question, and may, maybe it's not. So, so stop me if it isn't. But you, you up to that point, and and still you spend you, know, you spent your career negotiating deals. Was it any different negotiating your own deal? Is it you know when it's you you on the you're not acting for someone? It is you and you know your business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's you know it's the old busman's holiday thing, isn't it? But um, you know that the painter never has his own house decorated because he's out. He can't be bothered to do his own house. He's doing everybody else's sort of thing. But it, it, it's it's actually much harder, right? I do remember through one of the negotiations, Harry and I sitting in a room and we had our view of the value, and clearly, you know, the the, the Solucom guys had their view of the value, and it's a negotiation like anything else, and we. There was one particular meeting. It was in it was in our office in London. They came over to London. There was three of them. Um, so Pascal Lambert, he's, he's still our, our, our CEO today. The strategic development director and the the finance director were sitting in front of us, and we pushed really hard to the point that asking. And I can't remember exactly what it was over, whether it was money or whatever. And they said, "Oh," and we agreed to step out of the room. Harry and I went upstairs to our office, left them down in the meeting room, and looked at each other and went, "Oh no." Have we asked for too much? And that was that critical point where you're questioning yourself of what have we done? And I vividly remember that. 
And we went back downstairs and, and luckily for us, I think they accepted whatever we, we suggested. So there's a big sigh of relief at that point. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I think that's part of negotiation, isn't it? You've got to, you've got to understand how hard to push, what to ask for, when to, to back off. But yeah, it, it, it was hard. I mean, we did the, we did the negotiation ourselves. We didn't employ a, a firm because we weren't looking to sell. We didn't have a firm sort of dressing us up. I guess the disclosure process was challenging. Where, where you disclose everything, you know, the due diligence process, if you like, once you've agreed a, a conceptual deal, then you've got to start telling your team and there's always that impact. What does that mean for everybody? You know, we decide to sell. So that process was quite challenging. We had to get lawyers on board. And I remember saying to um, Pascal afterwards, after it was all done, I said, well, we did that on our own. I mean, we, do we, we, should we have got somebody? Did we miss out? And, and he, he looked at me and said, no you guys did so i think it kind of came back to us that actually perhaps we you know that was what we were good at right so we managed to achieve achieve the negotiation but yeah no we negotiated it ourselves always with deals you hear about the the financial side and i was just intrigued there to the, the answer you just gave and i think you also mentioned the other critical part of a deal which is the cultural side you know making sure that you were a good fit or or making sure it's a good fit for you more importantly you know, you'd left Deloitte for a number of reasons. I don't think we touched on it here, but I know you mentioned the big company culture was something that you, you wanted to leave and move out of. And starting a smaller firm yourself, running that for a good number of years, you get used to that type of culture. Actually, how much of a shift was it going into Solucom, which you know, at 1,000 to 1,500 people is a big company again, and not only a big company, you're the the sort of English outpost of a, a thousand and, or a fifteen hundred person French company. I mean, how was that cultural shift, and and how did you get comfortable to start? And actually, how did you make sure that transition worked for you and worked for them? Yeah, it was hard. It was challenging. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't say anything bad about Deloitte. Fantastic consulting company. I learned a huge amount. Right for me. It didn't tick every box that I was looking for in my career when, when the opportunity came up. But I will always be very, very thankful for what they did for me. And I've still got friends who work there very, very successfully. So um, the biggest challenge, I think, for us at the beginning was all the reporting. You know, we'd, one of the things we'd done very well, and, and Harry was brilliant at this, was he installed a process in us to do, you know, monthly reporting. And we, we had everything like laid out. Our accountants provided us with very, very good information pack, which did make our due diligence process a lot easier because we could demonstrate how we'd done as a firm, the decisions we'd made over a long period of time, okay, for the, for the, for the life of the business. But suddenly we were entering a company that had its own way of doing KPIs, its own measures of consulting metrics, right, which are probably different to Deloitte, different to what we were doing or whatever. And it was ingrained in the company and obviously coming from a French perspective. And suddenly we were asked to attend all these monthly meetings, these monthly forums, present our figures in a completely different way. That was really challenging. That's, if I reflect on it now, that took up far too much of our time. And it's one of the reasons I think where the challenge is of you as re, any recently acquired business is to maintain the performance of the business while you're integrating and learning all the new starts of the new business. Okay. So, so that was really challenging. Clearly they were based in Paris, right? So there was the, the location thing. There, there are cultural differences between the UK, the, the English speaking world and the French speaking world. You know, that's probably time for another podcast on, 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 on <laughs> cultural difference between us and, and, and the French. You've teased me, right? Have... There must be an example. Just one stick well, out. Well, I, I remember through the negotiation process, and we were very lucky that the, the guy who represented Solucom 
unfortunately he's, he's no longer with us which is which is very sad but he had his business in in london and he was a french guy he'd worked in london for many years and and he he had this booklet which had the cultural difference between france and, and england to help with the negotiation process and he was very supportive of us and he was trying to help both sides because yeah. it, it was key for him to have a deal done so he was helpful to us even though he was obviously being paid by by solicom and one of the things it, it said in there is if um a Frenchman says no in negotiations, it actually means, yeah, keep persu- persuade me. If an Englishman says no, no, it means no. Right. And that was just an <laughs> obvious, that was just, I think that was on page one of this booklet. Right. And, and it just sort of carries on translating through things like that. We have very different employment laws, but one of the things that attracted me to them, very, very people oriented business. And, and it still is today, very, very transparent culture, this is the way we treat everybody fairly. We treat everybody, not everybody's the same, but everybody in the same way with the same ethos. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's transparent on the, on the, on the salary structure. So you don't have people who are well off grid and stuff like that. People are paid in the same way and it's transparent. And I think those are some of the, the, the core values that, that came through that process. So we like those, but embedding them all in becoming, you know, the UK version of, of, of the company was a challenge but if i go back to about you know the size and the scale yes we're part of a bigger company but we're still a small company in the uk right and even on our growth journey and we're 120 people now we're still small right compared to the the big the bigger entities but what i really like about the wavestone group is we are one company whereas i you know some of the other organizations other consulting firms would would trade under the same name but they're different entities in different countries. They collaborate, they work together, whatever. We are one company, right? You know, you know, we can easily work together. If we need help on anything, we can just ring somebody up in France and they will support us. If, you know, we you know, challenge sometimes getting their time, but they want to support us. They want, it's ingrained in everybody to help anybody in the business. We, we, we call it Wavestone First. One of the key parts of our of our plan, if you like, to get out of the coronavirus situation is Wavestone first. So everybody has the mentality that the company's first. So it doesn't matter where in the world, if you can help and it's benefiting Wavestone, then do it, right? And and I think that's a that's a good attitude, right? So I want to come on to that in more detail, but I just, this may be again, a, a sort of irrelevance, but I just, it's a curiosity. You know, you mentioned the French culture and the differences, but there's sort of, there's the obvious and, and sort of one we haven't touched on, which is frankly just a completely different language. So actually, how you know it, it's one thing being able to translate, and and you know my my little pigeon French from holidays when I was a kid tells me that no is pretty universal. But yeah, how did that element? You know, how how did you transcend the language barrier? You know, did you did you get sort of night schooled in French during the negotiation and beyond? How, how did that? How did you overcome that? Very lucky, I guess. Is it the the? Um, we're lucky living in the UK. It is it is an international language, English, right? So everything was conducted in English, and credits to Pascal and the guys. They did all the negotiations in English, right? So so obviously they had a they 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 used a law firm and they had a, an English lawyer there, their their French lawyer who spoke English, but it was all done in English. So a huge credit to him through that process. So that actually made our jobs more easily. Now I'd be lying if there weren't periods through negotiation where he would have to pause, the lawyer would explain it to him in French and they would work it out, right? So that was fine and we understood that. 
But, you know, I, I join the XCOM of the group. So that I guess the leadership of Wavestone is very much there's a supervisory board, which is Pascal and a couple of other people from in the firm, a couple of non-execs. And then there's an executive committee, which is the practice leaders across the group. It's a wide, wider group of people. So I joined that and Harry did. So we both joined that from the day of acquisition, if you like. That was a forum that met once a month. They, all of those meetings were in English from day one. Okay. Now, in the early years, there would have been many breaks while they would have been translating for members of the team. But that's what Pascal wanted. He wanted to drive more of an international culture through his leadership team. So I think that was, that was one of the reasons why we were brought on board, actually, was to help that process. But that shows you something about him and, and what he wanted to, to achieve. So the language barrier for me wasn't a challenge in that perspective. The challenge was, you know, all the collateral we've got and all the processes across the whole company would be in French, right? So translating those and getting them applicable for the UK, we, we did have to go through some of those issues in the first in the first few years. Yeah, no, re really interesting here. And, and like you say, I mean, it, it shows the commitment to integrate you if they're changing the uh, the language of the XCOM just to, to allow you in, which is, you know, I guess, testament to everything you've been sort of talking about. And, you know, we, we touched on before. And actually, you mentioned there around the growth that, that Wavestone has, has been rebranded. Wavestone's been on since. Actually, how, how has that journey been for you and the team? Because when you were acquired, you were sort of somewhere between 20 and 30. Again, you, you probably have the exact number. And over that sort of five years since the acquisition, you've, you know, you've grown to over 100. So what's that sort of four to five times growth? I mean, that's a hell of a growth journey. So how have you achieved that and and what is it that's enabled you to sustain that growth and keep that culture that you want in the business as you've done it? Well, Waveson as a company has had a huge growth culture. So so the change, so we joined, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but if it was around one to one and a half thousand people when we were acquired, when we joined the group, they made a, a second international acquisition shortly after ours. I'm talking a number of months, acquired a, a Swiss firm, probably like three or four months after. And then there was a huge acquisition that happened at the back end of, I can't remember, the back end of 2015, early 2016, where we acquired the European operations of Kurt Salmon, which was like 800 people coming wow. on board. So, you know, the, the ambition, and, and that gave us offices in Luxembourg, another office in Switzerland, an office in New York, as well as, you know, again, probably, you know, 80% of the people that came on board were in France. So that was a huge acquisition for the group. And off the back of that acquisition, we retired all of the brands. So the Hudson York brand, the brand in Switzerland, the Kirk Salmon brand, the Solicum, were all retired and Wavestone was born. Okay. So that, and I get the years right or wrong. I can't remember if it's 2016 or 2017 when the, when the brand was changed. So we went from a Hudson York, a Solicum company to Wavestone through, through that process. So, but the point is here, Wavestone has always been about growth both organically and acquisitions and and very much driving every one of the individual practices here's your target you will grow out of all of your issues you we will acquire and we will just keep growing and that's that's the mentality and has been for for many years through the life of the company so you then translate that back to the uk it was right we need to grow organically so how do we do that so you know we we were niche. We had a specialist set of services. So how do we widen our services a little bit? What's parallel to ours? You know, very, very strong in cybersecurity. So we brought somebody over from Paris who was an expert in cybersecurity to just help us grow and develop that area. Then we would try and recruit one or two people in that. We started to recruit graduates. We'd never done 
graduate recruitment for the whole life of Hudson York. We were very much a, I guess, a, a, we sold on expertise. So, you know, more middle-aged, more senior expert type team. We were now going to start recruiting graduates. So we recruited our first three, I think three or four graduates in, in, into the team in the second year of being part of the group. So that was evolving. So, you know, that's probably more generic in consulting. So through the journey, it's graduates bring bright young people in, maintain your expertise, but focus on the two or three areas you're good at and leverage the group of where they had the skills and the capability to support us. So that's how the journey started. And then to get to 120, we, we acquired back in sort of two years ago in April. So what are we, 20, so 2018, we acquired another business in the UK, which was the Exceed business. And that brought us about 50 employees on board. So and I think at the time we were about 46, 48 employees. So it was very similar size in employee teams. The Exceed team used a lot of um, subcontractors. So they were a bigger firm than us in the UK at the time. That created the UK firm as it is. So, so I've also been through, a, I've, just, I've run a, a two-year integration process to, to, to bring those guys on board in the UK, which is interesting. <laughs> I was keen to ask about that, you know, like you said there, that you, you're in effect integrating three cultures. You know, you've got the Hudson York, as was albeit a Solucom company. You were further on in the journey, but in effect, you've got the Wavestone ethos, culture, and global, you know, global approach. You've got the Hudson York approach, and you mentioned the Exceed side there. It's a huge question, so I don't expect you to answer it all. But how, how were you able to do that? What were the key things you focused on during that integration to enable the, you know, those three cultures to become one under Wavestone and that Wavestone first approach? Well, we actually took the attitude of we realized we needed to create a culture and, and we, we the Wavestone UK culture needed to be created. Right. There were elements of it in Hudson York because we'd been part of the group for sort of three years at that point. And there were elements of it in the Exceed team because they, you know, the reason we acquired them because they had key strengths in certain areas, which were very complementary to what we already had in the UK. And there were elements of the group. And if we go back to the group, you know, very, there's some real key principles in the group that we want to translate across every practice wherever it is in the world. And then you adapt locally, you know, and, and things like that, you know, the, the way bonus is paid, the way the, you know, the appraisal process is done, the, all those key things are consistent across the entire group from a, a people perspective and the transparency. And so we had to build all of that in at the same time as combining the, the good bits of, of, of both. And, and we made a decision quite early on to accelerate the integration because we were pulling together sort of two teams of people in, in the UK of a very similar size from an employee perspective. If we just purely take the employees and not, I guess, not the revenues of the businesses. You had people on both sides were like, you know, what does this mean for me? What's this going to, what's my, you know, grades had to change and, you know, what, because we have a grade structure or whatever across the group and the way, the way we use things. So people were asking all those questions and we realized that, just get on with it and do it. So we ran a very rapid 12-month program to try and align almost everything, which even in, in France, they were like, that's a bit quick. We've really done it that, you know, should we do it that quick? And we did it. And I, and I think that proved to be a real success from a integration perspective. But it was slightly different because we were also creating something. We had some employee forums from teams from both, we called them the X and the Y team, right, in the UK. We had people from both teams working together to create something and create something as part of the Wavestone UK culture. So that brought people on board and accelerated the, the, the change and the transformation. I guess if we do another acquisition in the UK, it'll be slightly different because we have built the culture now and it will be bringing that other company into that culture with the challenges that that would entertain. 
that I think takes me on to probably the last question on this. But what does that future hold? You mentioned the potential acquisitions. Obviously, there's the current challenges around coronavirus and what comes out of the back of the, the current period. What do those next sort of three, six, 12 months look like for yourself and, and both Wavestone UK and, and the group as a whole? Well, I think the answer to that question is very different now because of the, the current world we're in. You know, if we ignore, and we can't ignore coronavirus because it's out there in front of all of us and it has a huge significant impact. If that hadn't happened, the group is all about growth, right? And, you know, we've literally just before that happened, we acquired a business in the US. Um, big business, you know, really successful business in, 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 in the US, which I think would have helped accelerate the transformation of the UK as well. Because, you know, with the US and the UK and, you know, two huge consulting markets outside of France, you know, our markets in Luxembourg and Switzerland, we have, you know, smaller teams there, but they're very closely aligned to the French culture, more so than, you know, obviously the UK and the US. So I think that would have helped us accelerate where we could have worked closer together. We would have had you know, with the acquisition, the team in the US would have been bigger than the UK team, I think, you know, because our, our, with, with with just our New York office, we would have been the largest international entity. So I think that would have enabled us to transfer more, more, more quickly. And we would have acquired, we would continue to grow organically, and we would have looked at other acquisitions in the UK, actively looking. I mean, since I've been part of the business in the last, well, just going in the last three or four years, I can probably think of at least four companies I've been in with uh, Pascal and our other members of the team talking to them about potential acquisitions. None of those happened. I tend to get asked my opinion after they've been met for the first time. Then they say, well, can we meet Mike? Because he's part of the UK team. So that's the, the, there's a cultural thing there from both sides. So we're actively, always actively looking. But now we're in the coronavirus world. It's much more around navigating our way through this current crisis, right? It has impacted us like it's impacted everybody. So we have our battle plan, which we're executing against to try and, you know, manage our way through the crisis. And, you know, being a people first organization is very much around protecting the jobs of everybody in the team. So I think that's very, very important. So how do we manage our way out of the crisis with the current team? So, you know, we, we have frozen the recruitment across the whole group at this point in time because we want to manage our way out of the crisis so that's our focus so it's slightly different and you know and in, in, in this weird world we've learned that we can continue to deliver consulting services but you know selling them and developing relationships with new people and stuff is clearly a challenge yeah no completely agree and i think it's yeah all bets are off for the next few months i think all the plans that were created in january this year have, have gone out the uh, the collective window yeah i yeah, I, I agree i, I don't think yeah, the plan for this year is different, right? And I think we've all got to accept that. This year is about getting through. It's about stabilizing the business. It's about being as successful as we can. It's probably a more short-term rather than strategic approach in many, many areas, right? Let's let's navigate our way through this. None of us really understands what the future is and what it looks like either. You know, things change almost on a daily basis, don't they, around what's happening. You know, we've just, you know... Leicester's just being locked down, right? We're lucky we haven't got an office in Leicester, but maybe <laughs> companies have. What does that mean? Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah. We haven't reopened our office in London yet, right? We're going to do that later this month. Does everybody go in? Does some people? There's all these decisions you have to make that are not part of just delivering consulting service for clients, right? So Completely. Well, Mike, I'm conscious we're, we're coming towards the end of our time together. And regular listeners will know there's the set wrap-up questions that I like to ask every guest to get the, the differences and the similarities in perspective. But I... I want to touch on something that I, I sort of felt would be best to hold just till the end. And it was something you touched on earlier. You know, you mentioned you're sort of an introverted person, sort of that, that would be the personality type. And I, I only touch on this a bit to what we were talking about 
with why you started your business and getting to the point you would do that. But to caricature, consulting is is quite a, a fast-paced, quite a sort of alpha environment. You know, particularly in the states, you get a lot of people saying, you know, I'm an I'm an alpha personality, I'm an extroverted, and I think there's a you mentioned it with sales, you know, sales, consulting, starting your own business. There's almost an assumption that you have to be sort of your, your beer drinking, your table banging extrovert to do that. And I just, as someone who is self-proclaimed not to that, I'd be fascinated in your perspective for others of actually how and why other introverts should you know, approach launching their own businesses and actually some of the benefits that come from being an introvert that maybe those introverts don't see when they look outside and see the extroverts doing the things they want to do. I think there's a, a personal thing for everybody here. You, you know, being aware of who you are, I think, is important, right? Be aware of your own personal strengths, weaknesses, and don't be scared of that, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with the way we all, we're all different. We're all human beings, okay? So, so for me, you know, I I realized very early on the sort of personality I am, and you know, to be successful in any business, I think you have to have a rounded set of skills around the table. If you had a team full of extroverts. They wouldn't get anywhere. They'd spend the whole time arguing with each other before they achieved anything, right? But you need some of the skills that you would have in that room to be successful, right? If you had a team of introverts, you might all sit there and and not get anywhere. I I, I don't know, but but for me personally, I think there's a confidence thing that comes with with your career and with maturity and with age. And so, if anybody you know is that way inclined and they realise that from an early age, it's it's how do you build your self confidence? So, you know, the idea of, for me now, standing in front of people talking is not scary anymore, right? I would never be, say I was very good at it, right? I wouldn't walk into a room and grab a microphone and start singing on the stage like some people would. But if I was in the room and somebody said, Mike, would you say a few words? I would happily take the microphone and say a few words. That's, you just learn, you, you learn that you're able to do that because you're confident in your your own skills and your own ability. And that comes with time and maturity and whatever. So I think there's a place for everybody. And I think if you're aware of your own personal, you know, strength, skills, weakness, personality, whatever, you know, you surround yourselves with, you don't surround yourself with people identical to you. Surround yourself with a team of complementary skills, capabilities or whatever, and then utilize the strengths of that team going forward. That That's kind of my attitude on it. And, and, and I think that's what's what's helped me in my career to date but yeah you know going into sales you know it was probably very weird i went into you know technical support for the sales team but i think i was always confident enough to articulate you know who i was what my skills were or whatever and i grew in confidence i still remember my very first presentation skills course when i was sitting there absolutely terrified and the instructor threw the pen at me and said right mike come to the front i'm like oh my god it was all it was all videoed and of course i feel like i'm shaking like you know the whole body's temp trembling he actually asked me name a topic and of course i went oh american football because i know something and he said right talk to the, tell everybody what that means and what it is so suddenly talking about something you know it's not something you've got to learn you just know it and it was all videoed and then they played the video and he said well how did you feel i said well i was shaking i was trembling well, he said well you, nobody can see you you're not visibly shaking yeah. So then you get more confident, don't you? Well, actually, no, I, I wasn't shaking. I can't see. Yes, I look nervous, but I didn't look anywhere near as nervous as I felt. That builds your confidence up. And I think, that again, that's training, isn't it? We can train people to do things. We can train skills. And I know, it, you know, we, diverse things, but it's one of the things in Wavestone, right? We, we, you know, we always say we hire for attitude. It's about hiring the right people with the right mindset, with the right overall capability not necessarily the skills because you can train the skills mm. as long as you get the people that, that fit in 
with what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, two really key points. I think, you know, like your story has shown that sort of getting the right skills around the table. It's not like we said with sort of having significant others at home who support you. It's not all a one man sport. And actually, if you've got the right people around that table with the different skills, it and again, I'm not an American football aficionado, but it's why you have the different skills, defense, offense and the kickers. It brings the team together. And actually, the mindset piece, I think, is a really powerful one as well. I deliberately caricature things with this, but exactly like you've said, no one's born to do everything the way they did it when they were five or 10 or 15. You know, it's you can learn these skills like anything else. And also, you've got to utilize the skills of, of everybody. And some people hate it, but you take any sporting analogy, right? You don't ask your goalkeeper to play as a striker position if you're in football, right? So why would you do that in business, asking somebody to do something they're completely not good at? You, what you've got to do is find out what they're really good at and help them be even better at that. And yeah, build skills around them. But And, and, and I think that that's a skill sometimes, isn't it? It's is trying to help people do what they're good at and put them in that position to be successful and don't ask them to do something that you know is is a total weakness sometimes because is that fair and is that going to get the best out of the team right so yeah completely and i also like I, I appreciate your use of sports metaphors because regular listeners know i'm i'm terrible with metaphors and to your point about growth i always try and use them to improve but sports about all i can do so if you try and take me off sport i just crumble my sport metaphors aren't great but uh but no i think it, it is crit- it's a key point and it does actually, it, it brings it to light so obviously because I think I think the challenge could be in business, particularly in consulting, when you're used to being such a, you know, a jack of all trades, you don't have a goalkeeper shirt on, so it's not as obvious. But you may be a goalkeeper in the sense of what you do compared to a striker. So I, I completely agree. So last two questions, and one of these is a bit of a wrap-up. One of these is more just, it's something I ask everyone. And so I'll start with that one because I'm really interested in the answers and I'll explain why. And then the second one, as I say, is just a nice chance for you to sort of synthesize some of what we've spoken about for some key points in key people's careers. So the first one is books. And this is really just a, a catch-all, but I, I read a lot. My listeners, you know, a lot of my listeners read a lot. And I'm interested if there's any book or books, doesn't have to be nonfiction, it's worth saying, that you find yourself as either, either giving away to people now or you found yourself sort of going back to or has had a huge impact on your career as, you know, as you've gone on the journey you've described today. I mean, I, I, that, that's it's a really a question, a really interesting question for me, because I'm not the sort of person who's ever really given out books to team members, right? I've had books given to me, which have been interesting. I've read. I tend to read a lot through, I guess, current affairs. I read a lot of, I, I guess, books that are just interesting, sort of fictional books, right? To take my mind away and 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 to enjoy from that perspective. So for me, when I give, I get guess a, a, a advice in today's world. It may be, have you heard, have you seen that podcast? You know, I, I can only think of something recently. You know, there's a lot of diversity inclusion stuff out there. So, so sometimes you point people towards certain speakers or, or whatever, and have a listen to this. That that's interesting. My old business partner, he was very good at. He he liked giving out books because he was a real intellect academic who read huge amount more than i did and he took a lot out of uh, out of books so i think it's depending on the individual you are right yeah i can't say this with my kids listening because i'm trying to get them to read all the time right i probably as an individual haven't read enough academic type books since i left university i'm a very practical person i listen and i think that comes back to the introverted thing that you know I learn and listen from people around me all the time. I'm very, very observant around people and I try and pick up things from everything that I see around me and learn in that way. So 
I'm not. I'm not sure that answers your question well or not. But that's that's probably me. Yeah. It, so it it definitely does, and I. I feel my I, I keep this question because I there's a part of me that likes order and structure as a sort of you know a, a born consultant. But actually, you know, you are not the first guest who has made that exact point of you know books aren't necessarily your go-to resource. And I think particularly in today's age, you mentioned you know what we're doing now. Podcasts are a brilliant source of information, and actually the the access you get to to experts in frankly any field you want, you know, is is astounding through things like podcasts through video. Like you say, you know, don't let your kids listen to this, um, you know. But but again, it's a really interesting. I'm sure you know we have younger relatives, and I'm sure you see it. You know the the consumption of media at, at that age has completely changed. You know it's all on YouTube and watching people play computer games, or maybe that's just the youngsters we know. I don't know if it, it, it's a very different world, right? And you know you're probably going to ask me this in, in in a minute, but the the young graduates coming in at the start of their careers. Where they are today and where I was all those years ago, I mean, it's scary to think it was probably know, 28 years ago that I started my career, is very, very different. The expectations they have around the employer and, and, and I guess the social media element of the job, and, and, and that makes it harder for me to try and relate to some of them sometimes. So that's why, you know, you, you, you try and work together to, to get that through. You know, the, a lot of the people coming in at that age expect things, expect to do exactly what they want to do. That's their right. And, and, I, and I wonder sometimes, do they really understand what it is about work and the fact that they're here to, you know, it's not a, a God-given right to have a job, right? They've got to deliver something to be successful in their job. And, 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 and that's something that they have to understand. I was probably the same, but I've just forgotten it, right? Um, you know, so it's those type of things. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. The world's changing rapidly. Yeah, and no, I, I only laugh at because I do, I know exactly what you mean, that sort of last point of how, how much does the world change and how much is it just a different wrapper on the same thing, you know? Correct. I'm exactly. sure at, at 12, exactly. I'm confident at 21 or 24 or 25, and I think I've said it on the show, you know. I took the view that if you had no negative feedback from me, I should be a partner and then was baffled why I wasn't a partner at 25. And it's only now at 31, I can understand that. But um, yeah, you, yeah. you have teed me up for, for that final question. And this, as I say, it could be new elements that we haven't touched on. It could be just recapping some of the things we have. But it's a three-parter, but I'll keep it quick. So the question is, what one piece of advice would you have for these three people? And they're three people at different stages in their career. So one is exactly the person you just mentioned, that, that graduate just joining Wavestone. The second, I'd say, is is yourself as manager, you know, when you join Deloitte. It's that sort of person who's in the middle senior part of their career. You know, they've got enough of a reputation. They've done enough to, to have choices, but they're not at the, the top of the tree yet. And then the final person is someone who I, I actually, I break this out for people like yourself who've launched their own businesses, but they're, they're approaching partner. So they are either deciding to stay at a Deloitte and become a, you know, become a partner, or they're thinking, actually, do I make the leap and jump out? And as I say, it's it's very much what one piece of advice would you give to each? There's probably more than one piece of advice for for each one. But if you're starting out in your career and you're consulting, I think the first thing, you really need to understand what consulting's about because you need to evaluate if that's the career that you want to continue in for many, many years. Be very adaptable and flexible. You're going to be asked to do a multitude of different projects and things, some of stuff that you probably didn't want to do or hadn't decided to do, but I would embrace each thing and take each opportunity as a learning experience, right? And try and get something out of it personally. And also, if you're in a consulting firm, you're going to be surrounded by some very, very experienced and some very talented individuals. I would use that, learn from those people's, ask the questions, right? Ask all of those people questions and, and learn from them because I think you've got a tremendous opportunity to learn. So I think 
that's probably that one. The manager, probably a key point in your career around deciding, you know, you've made some decisions, you are where you are because you understand different things. So it's then it's, it's around how do you then start to become a better leader? You're at that point in your career. So if you're, if you're in consulting, you've got how are you going to impart knowledge around people around you? How are you going to build up teams? Are you going to take people with you? One of the key things for all consultants is developing really key relationships, right? And I think, you know, if I reflect back on my career, I wish I'd made more of relationships I made at a younger age because I think if I'd had a lot more of those now, I hopefully would have an even bigger network of, of people that I could work with and whatever. So it's all about making sure you, you, you really capitalize on the people that you've met and putting the time and effort in to building those relationships because they will only help you in your personal career. As, as you go forward and if you're approaching partner i think you're at a stage in your career where you probably need to really understand what you want from a i guess a responsibility perspective somebody you know made partner very recently in, in wavestone and the conversation i had with them afterwards was you know, they feel different now i said what do you mean well i feel more responsible i feel more responsibility on my shoulders i've got to put more back in the expectation of me has suddenly gone up that all comes with a partner or if you launch your own business right? Because people look at you and go, my expectation of you has absolutely changed overnight because you have that title or you're in that position. Make sure you want that, mm. right? Make sure you really want that. Okay. Because it's, you know, consulting you know, is all about, oh yeah, I've got this grade to that grade to this grade to that grade. And, you know, we're, we're good and bad at doing that. Right. But you've got to, don't just do it because it's there and everybody does it. What do you really want out of your career? Is that what you want? Great, then go for it. But understand that's what it comes with, okay? And 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 the expectations change and the challenge changes. And that isn't for everybody, even if we all think it is. Um, great thing, again, I get about Wavestone, and I, one of the things, I'm the reason I'm still here and I enjoy it is we're very happy for people to get to whatever stage in their career and that, that they can stay at that stage. They don't have to all go on to make partner. They can be very, very successful at whatever part of their career. And that's that's fine. And that's great. And we'll be supportive. So trying to work out what you want out of your career and where, where the best routes are for you. Fantastic. Well, some some really good advice there, Mike. And I, you know, I think that last point as well is a, a really key one for anyone, as you say, either thinking of doing what you did and launching your own business or equally doing what you now do and becoming a partner in a, you know, in a larger firm there's that responsibility. So I think some really, you know, some really key advice. Mike, this has been been great fun. I say, sad we couldn't do it face-to-face, but corona, coronavirus uh, unfortunately stopped that. You know, I'm looking forward very much to getting to meet you face-to-face when all of this lifts. And I think the only thing left to ask is for anyone listening to today's episode who wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about Wavestone, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Look, I'm very happy for, for people. I, I, I do it through alumni networks at university and things you know people can reach out to me i am at wavestone it's pretty easy to guess my email at wavestone it's my <laughs> name mike.newlove at wavestone.com I, I really don't mind people reaching out if they want to if it's a personal thing we can liaise in different ways but no very very happy obviously i've only got so much time so it depends on uh, what, what people are interested in but yeah i'm at wavestone i'm on linkedin you know people can reach out on any of those media if they're if they're interested Fantastic, Mike. Well, I will put links to your email, your LinkedIn profile and the Wavestone website in the show notes. And as I say, really appreciate your time. It's been a great conversation and, and all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you, Nick. Cheers, Mike. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.